Welcome to another edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Meltzer Five Star Project, the ongoing series in which myself, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Simon Cross, discuss a match that Dave Meltzer has rated five stars or higher. We're still at the AEW Revolution pay-per-view where we just discussed the Texas death match between John Moxley and Adam Page that was five stars worthy in the eyes of Dave Meltzer, a perfect match. But now we're watching a match that's somehow beyond perfection. <laughs> a match that he gave five and three quarter stars, or to put it another way, eleven and a half out of ten. Woo! <laughs> Simon, what match are we blinded by as if staring straight into the sun? Or into the face of pure beauty itself. Well, you do that every time we record these, Simon, and yet you've managed I mean you are wearing glasses to be fair. That <laughs> was when it started, but Oh dear. The only reason for that, listeners, is because instead of seeing my face, he just has plastered on every screen a photo of 23-year-old Minoru Suzuki. You're half right. One's Minoru Suzuki, the other one's Masanobu Fushi. And displaying some slight Fushi tendencies in this match is one of the competitors. That being... Brian Danielson, who is challenging for the AEW World Heavyweight Championship against Maxwell, Jacob Friedman. I remember when we were talking about our love for Fushi during those All Japan six-man tag matches, and I did say, if there's anyone who's an undersized wrestler that wants to understand how to work heel in a match, just study Masanobu Fushi in those matches. Well, we now have another great heel of a smaller stature in this match in MJF. But that's a very different... Well, it kind of is and isn't uh, different to the Masanobu Fushi mould. But this is our first ever match where we get to talk about MJF. Yeah. I think if you were to say early candidates for wrestler of the decade insofar as making an imprint in this decade that they haven't had the chance to in previous decades, I think MJF will very possibly be a top contender along with maybe Will Ospreay. Mm-mm. So far, they were the ones that I was saying if you were a, if you were to do a draft of wrestlers, ones that have the most potential, I think you would be between one of those two personally as to who you were to build your promotion around. Yeah, in fact, I think when we had that conversation, you drafted Will and I would have drafted MJF actually. I'm not saying I'm vindicated with this because, you know, it's just one man's opinion. Well, I guess one of the things I'd always said about MJF is obviously if you're a heel, very rarely is the heel the one that brings you the money in in America. Osprey, Mm. I think, can more easily do both. But one day we probably will get that MJF face run. And given that MJF has been known to model himself after Roddy Piper, when Roddy Piper turned face, he was almost as popular as Hulk Hogan was. So, who the hell... I mean, the the day it happens, the crowd will be looking forward to it. Mm. Because MJF really is a fascinating creature in that who, how can you tread that line of being a heel 
in wrestling in this day and age. Yeah. And do everything that you have to do. Because we were saying, like, maybe the other person who's been trying to do it at uh, an expense maybe to what he can do in the ring has been Jay White. Yeah. That he chose to forego the level of action that he can do that we saw from his Young Lions and then his learning excursion. High-flying, fast-paced, action-packed moves to do a character that's all about not doing the best thing to make a match, but to do the best thing to win a match. The best thing for him. Yes, the best thing for him. Not yes. not, not for the fighting style, a la yes. Minoru Suzuki. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, on the other end of the scale, you've got Will Ospreay, who is trying to be a heel for the most part, but also trying to have the most spectacular matches possible. Yeah. Because he's maybe the most physically gifted wrestler in uh, all of wrestling right now. MJF is probably the other example of that. And I think it's good that we're getting to talk about MJF because did you watch any of the press conference afterwards where he was basically (laughs) parodying CM Punk's press conference? With his jar of pickles. Yeah. Yes. Which are apparently a good uh, post-athletic snack because full of salt and electrolytes. Well, we'll get into what is appropriate to do in the the course of a match. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, will we. (laughs) What was curious with... That press conference is... I don't like those press conferences in all honesty because it's like you're calling upon the media to essentially act as your spokespeople, really, to play their game by doing stuff in kayfabe. I, I did... It was curious, actually. A friend of mine texted me the other day saying, could you do a wrestling YouTube channel that was 100% kayfabe where we were doing, like, a sports centre or any 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 kind of wrestling podcast or whatever... But we're doing it 100% in kayfabe. We talk about all the promotions, but we talk as if it's real. Hmm. We don't talk about the backstage politics or whatever. We talk about what's happening in the match, being outraged at the heels, doing stuff. Basically being a 2020s audio version of what the APTA magazines were back in the day. And I said, if you did that, they'd be the sort of people that should be attending these press conferences, especially the WWE ones. Yeah. Because how are you supposed to do a post-match press conference for something that wasn't a match. Mm. You know, you can talk to an actor backstage out after a f- play is finished. or You know, like when I go and see some of the screenings of plays, they'll interview actors, sometimes even in rehearsal, like in, in the build-up. I think that was more when I went to see an opera, they talked to some of the performers like in the, in the, re- in the interval and stuff. Yeah. But they're presenting it like a sport. They're not kayfabing it at the opera, are they? Yeah, and... Asking fucking Dave Meltzer to kayfabe it somehow doesn't work. I can see why they wanted to do it, because obviously it, it's like a cornerstone. You see it in MMA, you see it... Yeah. You've seen it um, for, for time of memoriam um, in American sports, in the NFL, NBA, what have you. They seem to have like players in the pros match, as opposed to like the tunnel reactions we have in the UK. Broadly the same concept, though. But the media outlets to introduce to it, if you're trying to do it like that, shouldn't be Inside the Ropes and Dave Meltzer and whoever else, Barstool Wrestling or whatever. It makes as much sense to do it that way would be as if when Jurgen Klopp does his press conference, he's being interviewed by Horse and Hound and the London Book Review because they're not compatible. Mm. They're not compatible with each other. But what MJF has been always tried to do is tread that line where he can work as a heel in real life and in ca- like he never drops the character 
Yeah. You know, he's method. And But then it also gets you into all sorts of things of, like, what's shoot and what's work and, and all that. Like, his whole, is he going to show up at the Wardlow thing? Was that a real thing? Was it not? Him no-showing autograph sessions, was that a real thing? Was it not? Yeah. And... I've always said I don't like the blurring of the lines. And we just had the... Before we recorded this, we were talking about the Dynamites episode that just aired where MJS doing his celebration and the four pillars all turn up and each one of them complain about something to do with AEW, directly or indirectly, about like stuff that's happening backstage or Jungle Boy having a go at him for never showing up on Dark or Elevation or Rampage, thereby pointing out that these are irrelevant shows to watch. I sent you the meme of Marge Simpson saying... That's true, but he shouldn't say it. Yeah. Because it reminded me of when we were like, when we, do you remember when we were doing the World of Sport? It had like, the women's division was like four people. And Wade yep. Barrett in the commentary said, yeah, there's not that many rest, women wrestlers, so they're just going to have to keep fighting each other. It's like, that's true, but don't say it. Don't point out the shallowness of your roster. <laughs> yeah. If you want to steer into the skid, that's fine. But do it like behind the scenes. Don't go look at this glaring weakness we have. <laughs> but the genie's out of the bottle. If he hadn't have done that press conference, then the what happened with CM Punk and the Elite wouldn't have happened the way that it happened. Mm. You know what I mean? I do, I do. And that's been the worst thing to happen to AEW in their existence. They've made a rod for their own back. But MJF, I, I feel like he's doing what he can to make it work. And obviously, there are other things that he did in this match that also <laughs> got him into some form of trouble. The, the, but what I did like, though, was MJF at one point taught, again, this is as close as he can get into making it bridge, like there's people saying he doesn't have... Because everyone went into this thing, and I don't want to watch MJF wrestle for 60 minutes. And then MJF just said, I don't wrestle much because I'm not an idiot, and I don't need to waste my energy on this. Yeah. I make it a special occasion because I am a special attraction. Yeah. And look at the matches I've had. And he says, Jungle Boy, Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen, CM Punk. And he's right. All of those matches were great for what they had to be. Some of the Chris Jericho stuff kind of fell apart at different points, but some of it was also excellent as well. Yeah. A la Dinner Debonair. Like, I was sold on MJF as an in-ring wrestler from the Darby Allen match. Yes. I was like, okay, he is one of the best guys going. But the problem with wrestling discussion, the problem with all of cultural discussion anyway, is how we're always in the short term. We can't remember things back like two or three months. And we can't think of things two or three months into the future. We're always in what's happened in the most recent week or two. Mm. But then you look at things like... Who cares how FTR had some rough months where they weren't that important. It took them three weeks and they're the hottest acts in wrestling. Yeah. And on another example, like, so many Tories now just seem to have willfully forgotten why Boris Johnson got kicked out of office. (laughs) It's like, just look at the newspapers from, like, two months ago. And don't kid yourself. Yeah. And I always think that, like, obviously we are in worrying times. But there's always that belief that we're in the worst of times, especially in this country since, like, 2016 or so, 2014 to 2016. And as well in America. And they're like, I don't think America's been more divided. And you're like, what? Are we forgetting a civil war? <laughs> a literal war? <laughs> I mean, we had one of those as well. <laughs> yeah, we had one of those. Britain doesn't usually have those. I mean, fucking hell, France. I mean, oh, the pensions. It's like, bloody hell. <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, guys. Yeah, but 
I admire that hustle. Like they they draw their line a lot earlier in the sand. <laughs> yeah, but and maybe as a result of that, maybe France never does go. This is the most outrageous time since when? Yeah, uh, last Tuesday. <laughs> So I was kind of baffled by so many people saying, oh, 60 minutes of MJF will be unbearable. I was like, it might not be brilliant, but it won't be unbearable. Well, again, because we're so short termist, people probably basically have willfully forgotten the last MJF match they saw before this one, which was a very good match he had with Ricky Starks. (laughs) I I don't think people really think of his in-ring work that much because it's usually like, oh... He's gone to the cheap heat well again, or, oh, he's done this, or he's done that. The whole point of the MJF character is that he's a loudmouth, but he can back it up yeah. to an extent to knock that one off your bingo cards. That he's essentially like, I think really the sense is that MJF is like a an A- minus who believes that he's an A+, plus or he presents himself as an A+. Plus. Yeah. And he does the underhanded tactics that get him to the level of success that an A-plus has. Yeah. Yeah. Also, all of the levels of bitterness and rage. And it's so many layers of, like, again, because of so much of, like, what of MJF is real and what is fake. It's like, in kayfabe, did MJF get bullied as a kid for being Jewish? Mm. And all of those things that he tells. Like, the story that he told about CM Punk. Did that happen? Yeah. And he's just lashed out in the wrong way. Or did it never happen and he's just a sociopath who <laughs> will say whatever he has to say and do whatever he has to do in order to succeed and get one up on someone? So this week I went to the cinema to see Cocaine Bear and the person I saw it with, I mentioned it to them at the start that, oh, actually, you know, this is based off a true story. And it, it does say that in like the um, early credits. And then I'll try and keep it spoiler free, but the wackiness of the film is apparent throughout. And at the end, it was it was my uh, other half, just she turned to me and went, so how much of that was real? And I just had to go, there was a bear, some cocaine did fall out of a plane, and he ate some. But then he just died. None of this actually happened. And in many ways, I have the impression that a lot of MJF stories are like cocaine bear. It's reality... And then just put through like a massive amplification of showmanship. The way that you can go with MJF is that he's the wounded little boy who was picked on and has got, you know, it's Sinestro in The Incredibles. Yeah. Or he's fucking Damien in The Omen or something. Oh. Or, well, no, not Damien. I don't know. I guess he's... I don't know if there's a good example of that. He's just like a personification of evil, essentially. Mm. And he plays that up himself with his whole devil outfit and everything. Yeah. But again, is all of that like him making up for his physical shortcomings? He will often point out how short he is in relative terms. Five foot nothing Jew boy. Yeah. So, and obviously there are certain connotations that you're physically limited by your height and your size. But also, have you ever seen Airplane? You know, do you want something to read? Do you have anything light? Uh, here, Jewish athletes of the 20th century. It's like a little pamphlet. Yeah. And that's not true, obviously. Fucking Goldberg, for example. There you go. <laughs> There's plenty of uh, top-notch athletes that have come from Israel. Yeah. But, there again, it's those stereotypes directed to Jewish figures. Mm. And he plays up to it as well, like the spoiled 
brat that he does with the, you know, this rebar mitzvah. <laughs> I was really worried when he started off and, like, you know, we're the promised people and all that sort of stuff. And, like, I was like, are you going to try and get people to boo Judaism? Because I don't think that takes a lot of effort in certain parts of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Not even certain parts of the world, pretty much the whole world. Just certain people within all parts of the world. You, know? you just remind me of that Family Guy sketch where it's the two Jewish slaves in Egypt. And it's like, they say all peoples in the world have to go through suffering. Well, we Jews are just getting out of the way early doors. From here on in, it's going to be smooth sailing. Yes, but Family Guy will also go very much the other way with the Jewish jokes as well. Yeah, yeah. My favourite line in the Rebar Mitzvah, where he like... He sort of got people to go, in, like, back the crowd into a corner when um, he was being lifted on the chair. And he's like, if you don't clap, you're anti-Semitic. And everyone's like, oh, I don't want to look like that. <laughs> and then started <laughs> clapping. <laughs> I think that was beautiful. <laughs> if Jeremy Corbyn had been in the crowd, we would have finally got the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I mean, there's ways and means... <laughs> So there was that underrating of MJF, and I think this match has gone enough to say that I don't think anyone's going to underrate him again. But then again, Mm. like I said, you know, the memories of Goldfish when it comes to a lot of wrestling, so... Well, just people in general are fickle. Yeah. Yeah, I've stuck with you for all these years. (laughs) To quote the other guy in this match, fickle. Fickle people. I do think, though, that... Some of the negativity going in was just that. Also, it was just that sense of AEW shows are long enough already. We don't need it to be main evented by a one-hour match. But to be fair to them, I think the whole show is like under four hours, which is just about tolerable. Yeah, they structured this really well, mainly by not showcasing a belt or two, to be honest. Or or a multi-person ladder match that's usually a big clusterfuck on this show. Yeah, well, they, they pulled that forward, didn't they? So. Yeah, yeah. But when you've got, like, special events... For all the stipulations, you would think the Iron Man match is the one that, like, hardcore wrestling fans would like the most. Because it's an hour of wrestling, and everyone's always Mm. moaning about how little wrestling there often is in wrestling shows. But I don't think the Iron Man match has the most positive of reputations among smart fans. I think because, more than any other match, it's like... It's got an even more rigid formula than any other match, maybe outside of what we get with the ladder matches and the tables matches, where they're just cliched spots. But the cliche of Iron Man matches is that they just stretch things out to a long period of time. And the first 55 minutes of the match are very often redundant Mm. because it's always going to be a mad scramble at the end, either for one guy to equal up the score or go ahead on the score. And that's also the problem because they always like to. And how many Iron Man matches are booked to end in sudden death overtime? It feels like at least half of them do that. (sighs) Maybe that's wrong, but that's just the impression you get. But what's also really interesting about the Iron Man match is I looked into it, and whilst the Texas death match has a lineage going back decades, the Iron Man match, it's kind of harder to quantify. And part of that is because matches going 60 minutes was not a crazy phenomenon. It became rarer in the modern era of the 80, like 84 onwards, where there's no longer the touring NWA champion who has to do the 60-minute matches in order to keep the local boy looking good without losing. Yeah, Broadway then just became about theatre after 84 onwards, really, didn't it? 
and that map-based, more realistic and slow burn style that was coming from the Luthezes of this world eventually started to lose favour. And then when, when guys like Hulk Hogan, who are not the best worker in the promotion, start being the figures that you put in as the main event, well, Hogan's never going to work 60 minutes. No. The Ultimate Warrior is not going to work 60 minutes. Oh. Randy Savage probably isn't going to work 60 minutes. Because fucking hell, can you imagine him trying to remember every single spot in that match? Oh, that yeah. <laughs> See, I was just going to go with the Ultimate Warrior did, would never have had the cardio to do 60 minutes. Yeah. The Ultimate Warrior struggled to do 20. <laughs> so matches themselves started to get shorter in wrestling. And really, Ric Flair... Obviously, could work that sixty-minute formula, but he also because his matches were so formulaic, he- formulaic, but also more high spot heavy. But he had just the most insane cardio that he could do that style of match. Oh yeah, but it really just died out with the Nick Bockwinkles of this world, really. And I remember Ted DiBiase when he was in the late nineties, going on his sort of things were back in better in my day saying, oh, no one <laughs> know how to go 60 minutes anymore. And it was like, that's true, but no one's really trained to go 60 minutes anymore. Yeah. And so it then becomes the novelty of the length of time. And I'm going to get this out of the way right now. If a match isn't 60 minutes, it's not an Ironman match as far as I'm concerned. I don't get the logic of a 30-minute Ironman match. Because the thing is, an Ironman match works because how many matches go beyond 30 minutes next to none? But most main events go somewhere between 20 to 30 minutes. So pushing it to 30 doesn't feel like some great endurance test to me. Yeah. Especially with, like, like we've talked about with modern athleticism kicking on the way it is. Like, feats of endurance just go by the by the wayside. Like, not by the wayside. They're just part and parcel now. Not that they weren't back then, but these guys are working a faster style. So the levels to which they have to be in physical shape from a cardio perspective are insane we are an insane age but anyway to the match itself well i just want to talk a bit more about the iron man match because it's a relatively recent phenomenon Mm. it wasn't even called the iron man and and do you know who it is that might have invented the match no pat patterson creative wonder that he is so obviously you create the royal rumble which is the one sort of 60 minute ish match that is allowed to go that long in wrestling but with that you've got everything changing up every two minutes <laughs> yeah. at least and 30 people get to participate in it he came up with it as like a house show gimmick and the first time they did it that it was and again i don't know if it was called the iron man or if it was called the marathon match because it slide off the f- you'll never guess who were the first people to do it but they did it in august of 1989 and it was a run of matches where it was headlined by the rockers Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty against the fabulous Rougeau brothers, <laughs> Jacques and Raymond. The Mountie. And maybe an Iron Team match is a more suitable format for it because it, al- it would allow it to go at a faster pace. Yeah. And there's more variance in it as it goes along. And you can have more fun with that, I think. I'm amazed FTR haven't tried to do a tag Iron Man match. If it were to happen, you'd get FTR against the Young Bucks and they'd be indulged that far. So maybe if it does happen, that'll be the match that does it. Yeah. But then after that, WCW had a few of, had a couple of them, but they were both 30-minute matches. One was Rick Rude against Ricky Steamboat. And that's a really good match. I, like, if, if you were to ask me to rank the Iron Man matches, even though I've already said I don't count 30 minutes, that would be right up towards the top. 
Yeah. Then the WWF brought it back for a couple of matches, and these would be good match of the weeks to discuss. Uh, Bret Hart had a couple. He had one with Ric Flair in 1993, early into his title reign. Mm. And he had a couple with Owen Hart during their run post-WrestleMania 10. Okay. So those would be fascinating ones to cover. And then there's the WrestleMania 12 match, which is the first WWF televised Iron Man match. And that is the true... I don't think there's another match in wrestling that has a more varied level of opinion of it. Mm. I mean, Kurt Angle, I think, says it's his favourite match. Or one of his favourite matches, anyway. Yeah. And there are others that say it's one of the worst WrestleMania main events ever. And I think the problem with it is that they didn't do the Iron Man format of telling a story through the falls. Yeah. What they should have really done is had them go in a regular match, and it just happens to go a 60-minute time limit. But the wrestling style is so unusual. But It's a weird way of doing it, but it would have been fascinating to do it. I think if they'd have done it that way, it would have maybe been more respected. Oh, definitely. Because you would have bitten more on the near falls, or maybe they would have made more of a big deal out of the, the near falls. But it was so an anathema to everything that WWF ever did. You know, the, there's been maybe half a dozen matches that have gone over 30 minutes on WWF televised TV that's not a Royal Rumble, televised matches that's not a Royal Rumble of that modern era. Mm. You know? Obviously, there are people like, I think Bruno Sammartino and Pedro Morales had a uh, like a 73-minute time limit match because it like it was a curfew time limit. I don't know. Uh, okay. That's what they used to have back in the day. Yeah. A lot of Heart Foundation British Bulldog house show matches would end with that. And... I think I think I've only watched it once, which you'd think would be strange for someone who's such a huge Bret Hart fan. I've never seen it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got an idea for something, so so maybe we will cover it for that, but if we don't cover it for that mode we can make it a match of the week as well. Mm. The the basic problem is that it does what so many Iron Man matches do, and is essentially take the moves that you would see in a in a regular match and just Spread it out. It's like yeah. when we watch the Ric Flair Barry Windham match that's going sixty minutes, and the Ric Flair Barry Windham match that goes thirty eight minutes, and it's basically the same amount of moves. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> con- it's just condensed squash or regular strength squash, basically concentrated squash. Sorry. And to start talking a bit about this match as we go into the thirty third minute of this t- <laughs> recording <laughs> so far, I was really noticeable about that in sort of the the thirty to forty five minute period where Danielson gets him in, wrapped in the figure four leg lock. Yeah. And they really space stuff out at that point. They make the submission hold. They work that for longer than you'd expect. Then there's a much longer period of them resting in between. Well, not resting, but, you know, working tired. Yeah. Working on the apron. And then it's built around just like a big move. And, and then they sort of build the next three, four minutes around that, which is MJF hitting his elbow drop off the top rope through the table yeah then later going for a count out Danielson beats that count so then he takes him out and does the tombstone on the table then he brings him in and gets a pinfall like they stretch so much out of like like if you did a list of the moves done there's maybe a move per minute for like the 15 minutes of that period of the match they make it work but again it's so much like if you're visibly working differently because it gives away the time. I think that's what made the Okada-Omega 60-minute time limit match and even the matches other than that, outside of the G1 match, work. 
because they were working at a pace that didn't indicate they were going to go that long, but they just were able to carry it that long. Yeah. The only one that did feel like they were kind of showing that this is going to go long was the two out of three falls. Did you get where I'm coming from with that? I, I do. It'd be curious to watch rewatch that match, the, the Dominion 60-minute time limit, because it didn't feel like it was being wrestled at that pace. Yeah. I, I think it's the way they sort of split this match into... Into two, with, if you look at the frequency of, like, the, the big bunch of falls all around, like, the low blow spot, that's, like, pretty much the end of Act 1. And then Act 2 becomes, like, the exhaustion match off the back of it, basically. To me, structurally, it worked. It, it, it made sense. Like, you know, they had battered them each other, so that's why the match slows down. And I, I was fine with that. It wasn't like they were... Um, they, they disguise the spacing out more with uh, Max's frequent powders at the start or their Danielson's tribute to Thunder Liger and like things of that nature. Yes, but to be fair to them as well, a lot of it is them doing stuff because they know they've got to eat up time themselves and they don't want to expend it all. And that's also seen as part of the strategy. I actually remember, weirdly, the Iron Man match I have the most affection for before this one is the Rock Triple H Iron Man match at Judgment Day 2000. Mm. Because I was just convinced there's no way these two big guys, not known as great mat technicians who can make a, a 10 minute mat sequence look interesting, can go 60. And I was so shocked that they did. Yeah. But that was Triple H's Wonder Year of 2000. I'll be curious to see if that match holds up again. I haven't re... Iron Man matches aren't ones you, you want to go back and rewatch necessarily. No, no. Because it's meant to be an endurance, not just for the wrestlers, but in a way for the crowd. It's like a challenge for the wrestlers to make the crowd care after watching this for 60 minutes. And they do manage to do that. They achieve that. They definitely achieve that in this match. Yeah. If I was to give my favourite Iron Man match prior to this, I'll go Sasha and Bailey. Yeah, again, I don't count that because it's 30 minutes. Yeah. That was a fun 30-minute match, but it's not an Iron Man match, as I would look at it. Mm. You know? But it's a good, th- it's a really good 30-minute match. I think I've seen it once. I'd have to re-watch it, but I recall the Brock Lesnar-Kurt Angle being a good one. And I think that that is the one Iron Man match that followed the structure that is different to what you've usually got which is where Brock Lesnar builds quite a large lead. I think he's like 5-2 ahead or something. Yeah. And Kurt then has less time to try and catch it up. The curious thing with this is you'd think that would be a good way to build up Danielson coming from under and MJF, you know, being cocky and arrogant. Yeah. Would be him getting a big lead of like, you know, imagine if it was like MJF 6, Danielson 1, and we're at the... 40 minute mark mm. and then it's how'd you get those many falls in and they could have done that with the whole mjf gets beaten fair and square by danielson in what's just a straightforward one one v one match if that was all it had been then he danielson would have won the belt yeah and apparently that was the reason why the michaels bret hart match went nil nil because neither one wanted to lose the first fall that's just stupid yeah and like i said if you're gonna do it like that then just wrestle a 60 minute draw don't wrestle an iron man match yeah because again what could have been done with that but with this one the story of the match is like the moxley adam page match as i said in the previous episode it is the younger 
not yet fully established guy going up against the established veteran who was a megastar not only in AEW but in the WWE like when they came they were like a big signing mm. and taking them on in their domain although Danielson is not actually a guy that's wrestled that many I don't think I think this might be the only Iron Man match he's had he's probably had some on the indie scene yeah he's had long matches he has certainly had long matches you know famously I think I've said this before they booked him to have a match with Austin Aries where he was going to do it, that it was a two out of three falls match where the first two falls would both be 60 minute time limits and the <laughs> third fall would end at the 55th minute. And then he just called it mid-match that they weren't going to do that and instead they went like 74 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I like that. No, this was a stupid idea. Halfway through. <laughs> Danielson always wanted to push that thing. He had quite a few, he had like at least three or four 60 minute time limit matches in his run with the Ring of Honor World title. Yeah. Including a weekend of shows where he did two straight 60-minute time limit, two out of three falls matches. The first one against Nigel McGuinness, and then the second one against Colt Cabana, where he, like, separated his shoulder in, like, the first five to ten minutes of the match. Jesus. Oh, that man loves wrestling a little too much. Which was one of the themes going into this match. Well, I think the great moments of storytelling, and I, I will say this, like, AEW was sometimes screwed up on the camera shots. And I think they maybe missed one thing in this match. I know they've been missing some things in other matches recently. Or maybe they, I think they maybe missed something in the Moxie Hangman Page match. Mm. But this one had at least two or three shots that were absolutely, like, up there with the best New Japan stuff or, like, yeah. Vince McMahon waiting to coming up from under the ring like your great shots of wrestling which is when they're both exhausted and resting on each other and then it cuts to mjf who's utterly distraught and exhausted and frantic and terrified that he's gonna lose weeping weeping essentially with a face covered in blood and then it cuts to danielson who's just having the time of his life (laughs) oh this is mint (laughs) and we'll get to the other shot later on but throughout the match it is a case of mj again like the whole thing with mjf is he's like he is a really good wrestler he's got great submission holds he's a physical like he did didn't he do like a full like he did like a kota Ibushi sort of spot with um konsuke Takeshita yeah in their match recently didn't he and he always like surprises fans with what he can do but it's not always his best laid plans and he gets nervous about it like when he tries to do the moonsault in the match early on and he takes too long, and Danielson's able to evade it, and that I think that's when yeah. he hurts his leg. That's when the knee tweak kicks in. Yeah, and then after that, when he does the top rope elbow drop later on, it's like, well, he can do these crazy big spots and risk it all, but it just oftentimes doesn't pay off for him. Mm. And very often it'll be like, like when he does the the second rope tombstone, his leg's so screwed up that he can't pin him, and that's been the case in other matches. Like I think he had a match with. Chris Jericho, didn't he, where he's like... Where the knee's the factor. Well, I think he's mentioned it as being like an old high school football injury that's just mm. wow. flares up every now and again. So this is going to be a career-long Kawada-type thing. <laughs> or Matt Jackson's uh, bad yes, back. Yes, perennial bad back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it might be, yeah. But the other thing, again, with the MJF is that best exemplified by the shape that he is in going into this match. Oh, Christ, he's an athlete. He's, well... You don't have to be an athlete to get that kind of physique. Yeah, but... But, you you know, you have to do a lot of exercise to get that physique. But that doesn't make you an athlete. And I think mm. that's kind of the point, is he does all the stuff to get the external look of it. And whilst he's, like, way more shredded than Danielson is, Danielson is, like, 
functional fitness. He doesn't. He hasn't <laughs> done all that working out. Tactical muscle. Exactly, because he doesn't need to drink water at various yeah. points in the match, like MJF does. The whole point is much that MJF... to Taz's disgust. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a second. So the whole point is MJF can do all of that stuff, but maybe he's just not conditioned for it or doesn't do the hardest work or you know because mm. he does enough hard work but maybe he doesn't do the hardest work to do it so maybe he's genuinely slightly let down by his physical limitations and that's why he then has to resort to the underhanded stuff or maybe it's his mental limitations that cause those physical limitations a snake eating his own tail he's like he's a self-spiraling sort of self-fulfilling prophecy exactly and you know, one of the, sometimes in those matches, some of his biggest matches, it's, it's his own actions that undo it for him. It was his constant abuse of Wardlow that ultimately led to Wardlow not giving him what he needed and him losing to CM Punk. Yeah, and then subsequently getting battered by Wardlow as well. Exactly, and maybe we'll get a follow up to that in the near future. Christ, Wardlow needs it. <laughs> well, fans did start chanting it during that segment, so it's not forgotten. Yeah. I think the whole point to it should be that, like, and they can say, like, oh, Wardlow's momentum was really slowed down ever since. Well, maybe it's been because MJS been politicking and paying people off and all that stuff to make his Mm. life miserable since then. Including paying QT Marshall to break into his car. Maybe. You never know. That could be a good, you know, it would make sense for once. That could really, really work. He was just paying people off just, just to fuck with Wardlow, basically. Maybe it was like he told Samoa Joe to get that out of him. Like he knew about the hair before Samoa Joe knew about the hair. That, yeah, layered. All sorts of stuff you could do with that. And MJF's the sort of character that you can believe. Yeah, he would do that for like two years. Yeah. <laughs> he is spiteful. He's the epitome of spite. <laughs> so let's get to the water thing. Because this is one of those things where I think there needs to be more joined up discussion in AEW. And there needs to be more editorial control. I was saying, obviously, just before, like, all the four pillars all kind of pointing out failings within AEW. Look how self-aware we are. Also, things like, oh, you haven't even been on Rampage, and it's like, oh, yeah, Rampage isn't that important. I was right to stop watching that. Mm. (laughs) Soon after, like, the Eddie Kingston CM Punk promo bit. (laughs) Well, John Moxley was on Rampage a lot, but John Moxley just... Yeah. John Moxley's like that kid who wants to keep playing when... When, like, the bell's gone, basically. Well, John Moxley was essentially the other end of what MJF is. He'll fight anyone, anywhere, anytime. Yeah. Maxwell will fight specific people at specific places at specific times. Yep. For specific payouts. Yeah. And it's two different... And it works within the characters of both of those men. You know, it's not like Moxley's stupid. It's just Moxley is Moxley. And MJF is MJF. He's mad. It's different to stupid. <laughs> well, MJF's certainly... Loose in the screws in certain respects, potentially, as we say. Yeah. Moxie might be eccentric. MJF might be a sociopath. Oh, there's <laughs> no might. <laughs> like, Moxley is not the kind of guy that would put chemicals in the water. MJF would do that even if money isn't necessarily an object. <laughs> <laughs> For bants. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's that's the key story of the match, is that MJF is an exceptionally good at wrestler. And he surprises people constantly because they underestimate him because of his mouth and they think he can't back it up. But he will always take those shortcuts. You know, as when they're doing the forearms and elbows exchanges and everything, it is ultimately MJF that brings in a poke in the eye. The yeah. Roddy Piper spots to end it because it's like he can't win that. That was cute. Again, 
along the lines of how Jay White would present himself against Kota Ibushi or anyone else. And to bring it back to your point, him drinking the water, I, th- I think the point you're trying to make, and I just want to make sure I've, I've got the right sort of like understanding of this, is that MJF's like physical limitations means he does have to go out and get these sips of water. Like, A, it's like, when he's ahead to like symbolize, oh, I'm in control, and B, when he's behind, like, oh God, I need to rethink things. Whereas Taz is like, you're just going to blow yourself up. What are you doing? Yeah, and that is not the purpose of what he's doing. That is shorthand to the crowd to show that he needs to refresh himself, that he doesn't necessarily have the cardio to go. I mean, maybe you could say because he's getting the oxygen mask at the end that the water wasn't a good idea. But what that is a sign of is that he's taking shortcuts that no one else mm. does. You know, I remember it's something they very rarely do, really. But like, uh, I remember Shawn Michaels when he was wrestling against the Hart family in the Survivor Series, and it was him against the four Hearts, and he's able to get one up on Owen because Owen he gets to eliminate Owen because he collides with Brett in the in the ropes and Brett falls to the guardrail, and so the other Hearts are checking on Brett whilst Owen's like, "Why are you checking on him? I'm the guy that got hurt." Yeah. And during that time, Bobby Heenan throws him a bottle of water from the commentary <laughs> desk, and Sean takes a drink because it's meant to be seen as a shortcut because wrestlers don't have break periods, you know. Yeah. But no, everyone knows that water energizes you. You know, when you see fucking athletes doing the marathon or the Ironman, they're not swilling the water around. They are like. Or they're dousing themselves with it. And MJF does that as well. But Taz going into the science behind it, I think is a mistake because the point is not meant to be that MJF's... I don't think the point was meant to be that MJF's making a rod for his own back. The point was meant to be MJF doesn't... Mm. Is too knackered. Danielson's in better shape. And MJF has to take shortcuts in order to win. He has to poke people in the eyes. He has to take powder outside of the ring. He has to have his ring with him at all points to knock Danielson out with. Yeah. Because he can't quite do it on his own. Can't quite. And maybe the reason he can't quite do it is either physical limitations or his own mental It's his own mental limitations. Potentially. That's the start the start the spiral for me is his mentality. Yeah. But that's how you do the babyface thing that he you know, he had it in him all along. He just never believed in himself. (laughs) Maybe the MJF was inside us all along. Yeah. Maybe. You you always had a heart, MJF. (laughs) And Sid, no, you never had a brain. (laughs) You didn't even have half the brain that they did. Brilliant. (laughs) So he's, yeah, he's kind of halfway between the Tim Man and the Cowardly Lion, is uh, is what we're saying. Basically, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's an amalgamation of the two yeah. absolutely back to this match do you think we needed the blood because that was another thing like wwe even when they had blood they didn't have multiple people bleeding on the same show the only time that i can remember that happening ever in the wwe intentionally wasn't under vincent man's orders it was when bret hart and rick flair both bled at wrestlemania 8 and bret hart made this whole point that he made his stuff look hard way but then Ric Flair saw that and so just slashed across his face and <laughs> did it very it's, openly. It's, it's difficult because obviously the previous episode we did cover the Hangman and uh, Moxley thing. And we talked about excessive blood in there for Moxley in general, let alone like the whole same show. 
thing. And it is a bit of dilution that we did already have this match on where earlier on in the night where two men both bled. But but if you look at the visual aspect of the blood in this match, even the blood hammers home the point of the match. Because yes, Danielson bleeds, but it's just like a bit of like heroic a blood like oh you finally made like a hard man bleed kind of thing whereas mjf bleeding like a stuck pig is that oh i i'm not as hard i don't have that grip that danielson has kind of thing i do get what you're saying but partly that's also because danielson bleeds like 15 minutes before mjf does yeah so it's kind of congealed and healed over time as a result of that but i think they i think that's why they structured it that way so towards the end of the match to quote that famous uh, rock promo, Acts 1 and Acts 2 don't matter. Everyone remembers Act 3. Yeah. Where you'll get your memories from this match towards the end, you have MJF caked in his own blood, scratching and crawling to try and get away from this wrestling juggernaut. Yeah. When the restart is announced, much to the glee of Tony Schiavone. <laughs> that... <laughs> There's two outstanding performers there in terms of like, Everyone has that one employee that everyone hates, and that's MJF. Is how Bryce and how Tony Schiavone respond to the instruction of sudden death. But whilst they're doing that, the Danielson is already on his feet, ready to go. Yeah. And MJF, as we said, is like taking in oxygen. He like slowly is sitting up when he's hearing what's being announced. <laughs> the look of despondency is chef's kiss as a visual. MJF's facial expressions are class. All around, MJF maybe gets wrestling more than anyone does now. Mm. He does everything that you should do to get the maximum out of what you do. I think part of the problem he has is that it's cool to like heels these days. And that's why he goes to Wells. Perhaps he shouldn't or doesn't need to. And it gets a little bit, like, trite. I mean... We haven't covered it properly yet, but the whole throwing the uh, drink, which turned out to be an alcoholic drink, into the child's face. There's there's lines, you know. In fairness to him, he didn't know he was overstepping that line. No, he didn't. It It didn't. If we're going to call to your other Iron Man match that you love, when Sasha stole Izzy's little bow... That was of of that level, if not more, because she flat out made a uh, cry and the camera was... Yeah, that's true. Like, it was personal. That was just a random attack. Yeah, but perhaps that's worse. In a way, it's not like something that represents Danielson. It's just just some bloke. Yeah. Well, him doing it also without management's approval. And look, I think the way they got round it, by obviously having him meet Hobbs, having him hang out with the acclaimed... Amanda Huber like sat with him for a bit and everyone made sure it was all all right. He got a big acclaimed foam finger. He met MJF and MJF like worked it again because he's like, oh yeah, that guy's salt of the earth. We've chatted about it. We're fine now. I'm like, you chatted to a child. <laughs> like, <laughs> It'd be curious to talk to that kid in the future and find out what MJF was like to him mm. if he did break character. Because as I've said, we haven't really seen mjf at least whilst he's been a mainstream star break character yeah i think it's like a high spot shoot or something where he does kind of talk outside of character i mean even on um when he did the stone cold podcast yeah yeah i was about to say that was at least at least the end of it was done in character yeah where he was just like listen here cue ball (laughs) (laughs) but yeah there's just he's a rare rare talent and I would be fascinated to see what he would be like in the WWE. 
Vince is the fast. Like, how would he work around Vince if Vince were to come back into a creative position? Because mm. Vince would probably want to make him a manager. But would MJF have enough people backing him up? Like, he'd have Regal, he'd have Triple H, he'd have Cody, he'd have everyone saying, no, Vince, this guy is special. Yeah. But then you never know. Boggles my mind that at the age of 40, LA Knight is just now maybe about to become a big star in the WWE. <sighs> the man seems to have been custom made for this role and has yeah. tried to do it, you know, like, to go, I mean, like, if MJF's one of the few wrestlers out there that's trying to be like Roddy Piper. Whilst nowadays everyone's trying to be either Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart. Yeah. Neither guy known to bring the the golden economic years of wrestling. No, true, true. But MJF is trying to be Roddy Piper, who was part of that. And LA Knight is trying clearly to be The Rock meets Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. Like the only other person that really I've seen wrestle and think he's trying to be someone that was a big star when there was money in wrestling was... Velveteen Dream. And mm. if what happened hadn't happened, he'd probably be main eventing this WrestleMania at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But MJF can also go with Brian Danielson and give him this kind of match and do everything that's called upon. Mm. And maybe get something out of Danielson that not everyone gets out of because they want to match him for the in ring sporting perspective. Yeah. But with Danielson, it's just this is him in his elements. And what's so amazing about Danielson is that he can do both ends. You know, obviously, the other best match that he's had in, in AEW is probably the one, the 60-minute time limit with Adam Page. So he's done the 60 mm. minutes already. And that was the other end of the spectrum where he was the cocky prick yeah. who just underestimated Adam Page and then got his comeuppance at the next match. Yeah. After whining that um, his first time limit match with Kenny Omega went to a draw, he's like, oh, I'd have beaten him if I had a minute more. So he's gone from wanting sudden death to not thinking he would never need sudden death to now being in sudden death and then ultimately like having his spirit broken. <laughs> hmm. But he also, he does everything that's required upon him in the story of this match. And he wrestles it quite heelish in many ways, but yeah. it's like, because it's MJF, he deserves it. Yeah. But, you know, he does the I have till five several times. When he's got him in a figure four leg lock, he's taunting MJF. And even when MJF's reversing it, which is like almost a sympathetic thing, he's not trying to break it. But to be fair, he tried to break it by hitting Danielson. He just yeah. wasn't able to do anything from it. It's that thing, though, of like, like you mentioned, he's he, MJF swimming in his waters. This is his territory. Well, yeah, how often do you have a a babyface going into a match where he's probably the one that's underestimated his opponent. Yeah. How often do you get that? You don't, really. And to be fair, the only reason he gets beaten in the end, even though he gets pushed to a further point than he ever had before, was because he got bashed in the head with uh, an oxygen oxygen tank. tank. And that was the other shot that I thought was brilliant, because you could do that where it's just a surprise from nowhere. But instead, they lay that in, and MJF is waiting there for like 30 seconds with yeah. the camera. And the camera's positioned so that Danielson's crawling into shots. air over. Yeah, you have, they've established, you know what's about to happen, and you're begging Danielson to not take yeah. the bait. And he does it. Now, what do you think about Danielson tapping out? In the, again, it's one of those things where people were like angry and angry and debating it. And if they just waited for dynamites you'd be given a completely solid answer, which was he stopped feeling the p- something in his arms and what MJF had said to him got to him. Yeah. So MJF essentially defeated him in so- on different levels. He broke him physically. He laid the groundwork. Yeah. 
And everyone thought he was just laying the groundwork by having his arm targeted for months and months. But the true groundwork of MJF was the psychological groundwork, which he didn't even really see until the end. That's that until like it was only a week before where he laid in that whole birdie and um, buddy thing. I'm like, oh, you're not going to be able to play with your kids. Well, the whole point of MJF is that he does whatever it takes to get into someone's head. Yeah. And he just keeps pecking at it until he finds it. They basically expended Brian Pillman Jr. Because it was just, he just said the first thing. And the first thing that he said was what pushed Brian Pillman Jr. But then the next person he goes up against is Darby Allen, And everything he says to Darby Allen doesn't get to Darby Allen, And he has to kind of beat him in the match. But he hasn't been able to beat him mentally at any point. And the only way yeah. he's able to win in the end with a headlock takeover is by cheating. Again, so like when he can't do it that way, he resorts to it. And with CM Punk, he does all the word games and mind games. And Punk is the one that gets one up on him with the photo and everything. Mm. And so MJF just has to go full, you know, for him, nuclear. Yeah. By bringing out the anti-Semitism and everything. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things. Was that him truly reflecting a sadness that's deep within him? Or did he just say what he knew he needed to do to have CM Punk there for him to kick him in the balls and then cut him? In the same way that, you know, he gets that same knot on his head that CM Punk gave him. Mm. It's just a weird little coincidence. And again, as so many people pointed out, made it look like he had a devil's horn. Yeah. In the press conference. I think he alluded to that. Yeah, I mean, this is, in the eyes of Meltzer, a five and three quarter star matches. The first Iron Man match he's ever given five stars to. And like I said, I think this will now be the default pick of what is the greatest Iron Man match of all time. I think there won't be many. There'll probably be people who go for Lesnar angle. Mm. But... And again, because it's not like there's no real tradition of an Iron Man match, as far as I'm aware, in Japan or anything. If you counted 30 minutes, where would you rank Michael's angle? I, I don't have enough vivid memories of it. Mm. My my recollection of that was that it was the weakest of the three matches that they had. Yeah, but it's still Michael's versus Angle, so you're still that. You know, I mean, it's it's still like. Yeah, I do. I am curious how much of that Michael's angle stuff holds up as much now that like the. The Shawn Michaels school of wrestling is more criticised now than it was back then. Well, it's it's more... The young buckification of Shawn Michaels wrestling. <laughs> yeah. It is fascinating that Brian Danielson is the most high-profile Shawn Michaels graduate. Yeah. And there's like next to no Shawn Michaels in his character or his wrestling style at all. Well, you know, you can take ideas. Maybe it's the little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I do my favourite wrestlers of all time, Shawn Michaels will be in the list. You know, I'm not a Shawn Michaels hater. Yeah, it's just you know, Brett's gonna be above it. Because <laughs> I watched this in two halves, and that's really kind of cheating, I think. Like to have a true sense of the the experience of it, um, mm. I probably should watch it all in order to have a final rating. But as it stands, it's either four and three quarters or five stars to me. It's the other big contender so far for match of the year along with Will Ospreay against Kenny Omega. I don't think there's any other match that's really come close to that, in my opinion. So I didn't watch this all in one sitting. I watched this dodging spoilers. Like, they dodged pin attempts on each other at one key point in the match. There was that whole, like, rigmarole thing with Iron Man matches, which is a little bit of a modern trope. So I did watch it all, no spoilers. And I've re-watched it before, watching this both in single sittings. For me, it's five. Yeah. Pure and simply, the story they tell, and what and one of my checklists for fives that I've mentioned before is, could you take the match in isolation and it tell the story? It does that. 
Does it hold people's attention for the entirety of the match, especially when you factor in how long the match is? Yes. Does it leave both characters with interesting places to go to? Absolutely. Did it have that X factor of moments that made me like wince and moments that made me like laugh and like, did I feel? I felt. I felt. Did it provoke something from you? Yeah. Both emotionally and intellectually? Yes. Will people use it as the default for the greatest Iron Man match of all time? Probably, but that's how much of that is going to be recency bias. The problem with Iron Man match, like I said, it's maybe got the most genre trappings of everything, and it's you know the sudden death overtime and the extended periods of it. And I and I would have loved it if they did that because they did like the cliche stuff at the start. That was the stuff. If it's going to be four and three quarter stars, it will be because like the first fifteen to 20, 30 minutes does have some uninspiring, unoriginal stuff like the indie standoff. And again, I understand why they do it, but I thought it would have been brilliant during that whole pinfall sequence. If because they said there was no rest periods, you could have had it that like coming out of that, it was like Danielson three MJF one to see Bryce with a notepad like oh, yeah, no. at various <laughs> points Danielson gets a couple of pins out of it. Yeah, yeah, that was quite good. I mean, I've always said like the Iron Man match I wish I could see is the one that CM Punk and Colt Cabana did, mm. where they lost track of where they were, and so in the last couple of minutes they did that pin sequence stuff. But CM Punk kept getting two counts and Colt Cabana kept getting three counts because he was supposed to win. So in the end, he won it like 17-4. <laughs> but yeah, no, overall, this match, it's superb. It's a superb match. You rate it above Osprey Omega or is it too early to say? Oh, I am going to duck that because if I answered now, I, I, I'll be candid. I watched the Ironman match like literally 20 minutes before we started recording. I've only seen Omega Osprey once. I don't want to answer that question. I wouldn't give it a fair answer at this time. I assume the reason Meltzer went five and three quarters other than he's a madman is because he didn't want it to be the best match in AEW, which he thought is still Hangman Page and Omega against the Young Bucks, which he gave six stars to. Yeah. So that like, that's why he gave the Dominion match six and a quarter stars, because he's like, well, it's better than the match I gave six stars to. Yeah. Oh, my God. That man. <laughs> oh, what are you gonna do I, that's pretty amazing like last year i didn't give a single match five stars and there's a decent chance we're in march and i've given two already this year five stars possibly yeah I, I, that's one thing i said at the, the end of 2022 2023 could be a very special year for wrestling unfortunately a certain gentleman seems to be making his presence felt more back in the biggest promotion Mm. So it's really a potential that we might be in the best of times, worst of times scenario. In <laughs> over there. Yeah, well, look, that that's going to be a wild ride. As soon as I finish Last of Us, I, I probably need to start watching Succession. Yeah, we'll get, we'll do that, we'll do that uh, at some point this year as well. And it's not just the McMahons because, boy, when you watch Kendall Roy, you're going to see some t- <laughs> some TK in there. I think. But anyway, that has been this Melts Five Star match. We went we went about the same length as the match itself. We've exceeded the match actually. <laughs> well, that's pre editing. Ah, uh, that's true. I, I get rid of even more of what you don't what you say, Simon. <laughs> but for the next one, we'll go back to our match of the week episodes, assuming there's no five star matches in the interim. And where are we going to remind people? Uh we are going to a promotion. I'm very excited to uh, talk about, because it really intrigued me conceptually at the time, uh, Lucha Underground. You want to talk about cool camera shots in wrestling? Yeah. And it's uh, Pentagon, or Pentagon Dark, at the time I believe he is, yeah, versus the Black Lotus Triad. 
So Kyrie, Kyrie Sane, isn't it? Io, is Io Shirai in it? And it's someone Io else. Io Shirai and Mayo Iwatani. Mayo Iwatani. They do have different names in that, yeah. but we won't go into all that now. But there's nothing left to say at this point except, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with maybe more recommendations of Iron Man matches, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross, free, free for the letters in MJF. My name is Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, which are the second and third letters in Hanukkah. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five and three quarter star time. Whatever that is. Until the next time. Let's let's let me keep.